Happy Tuesday, Exchange fam. Is this not the best night of the week or what? Right? I mean, give it up. I love being here with you guys. And if you have not been a part of the Exchange for very long, we hope that you feel welcome and a part of this incredible community in Tampa Bay. I'm just so excited about what God is just starting to do in this city. So if you don't know me yet, my name is Chrissy, as he introduced, and my boo thing of 15 years is Hal. If you were here last week, you met him. And together, <laughs> yeah, he's cool. <laughs> and together we lead and serve and pastor over at the Temple Terrace campus. Do we have any TTers in the house? Raise your hand if you have not been to Temple Terrace before. So if you do not know where the Temple Terrace campus is, we are over in the USF area. And if you are looking for a church home on the weekend, you don't, you don't right now attend somewhere on the weekend. Or if you just live in that area, please come and hang out with us on Sunday. Google it. It'll be on your maps. And I'll see you there. There's my plug. But have you guys been enjoying this series? Deep, deep clean. I'm glad you've been so excited about it. I thought people were going to be like, yeah, like I've definitely felt personally attacked. But who in here has been doing some deep cleaning? Yeah, good for you guys. <laughs> Not so much fun. Every year before each semester, though, in our house, we do do some deep cleaning. Now, it's funny because my husband and I have very different ideas of what we think deep cleaning is. So when I first heard the title of this message series, I kind of had to laugh to myself. Um, so maybe you guys can help us settle uh, what can become a very intense fellowship in our household, okay? By raise of hands, I want to know, do you consider dusting to fall into the category of regular maintenance or deep cleaning? Raise of hands. I want to know who in here thinks that dusting should fall into the category of regular maintenance, okay? Raise your hand if you think dusting should definitely fall into the category of deep cleaning, like maybe only once a month or so, right? Once a year, someone says up front. Okay, here's a free nugget for all of your dudes in the room here, okay? Listen up. It doesn't matter how you voted because we are right. And if you voted that deep cleaning, if you raised your hand for deep cleaning, that dusting is for deep cleaning only, you are right in the room. And if you did not vote that way, then you just volunteered yourself to be the official dusters in your household. So pretty much this is a win-win situation for everybody tonight. But each semester, in order for us to be ready for what's to come, in order for us to make space for all the new, we first have to get rid of all of the old and that which no longer serves us in the season to come. And that's usually the worst part, right? Like, that's not the fun part. Last summer, it was way more fun to go out and buy all the fun baskets and organizers and labels and all that stuff. But as soon as I got home, I quickly realized that I could not move forward until I first took out the trash. Come on, somebody. Who's feeling me in here? This has been some heavy stuff. I've listened to these messages, and taking out the trash isn't fun. Like, it's not the first chore that I sign up for. I know that. It smells, it's gross, and it sometimes leaks. <laughs> but it's necessary. Because before you're able to receive all that he has for you, you first must acknowledge everything that's holding you back, everything that's tripping you up, everything that weighs you down. So today in week four, I just want to help us identify what I believe to actually be the root 
of each of the different messages throughout this entire conversation series, the deeply painful emotion called shame. If I were to try to define shame for you, I would describe it as a soul-crushing, identity-warping emotion. A soul-crushing, identity-warping emotion. I'm sure we can all quickly think back, and maybe some of you guys are like triggered to a moment in our childhood when we did something that maybe we weren't supposed to do, or maybe something was done to us, or maybe something was said to us, and we started to experience for the first time that emotion of shame. For me, I remember one of the first times that I look back and remember experiencing shame. I was about six years old, and I was at my sister's first birthday, and everyone was in the other room and opening gifts, and I was just kind of in the way. And I remember that the kitchen was set up with this amazing spread of all the snacks and the cake and all that. So I just proceeded to go in and, like, dive into the chips, okay, without first asking for permission or anything like that. And then I remember my grandma. She walked in the room, and she caught my eyes. She came up to me and held me by the chin, and she began to shake her head and look at me with disdain and say, what is wrong with you? Shame on you. And I began to internalize that shame that I experienced. If you're a note taker, though, one thing before we dive in, I want to differentiate for us the difference between experiencing guilt and experiencing shame. So when it comes to guilt versus shame, guilt focuses on the what. The what I did or the what happened to me. Shame focuses on the who. Of who I am. Guilt says I did bad or bad happened to me. But shame says I am bad. I must be bad. Guilt says, gosh, like, I can't believe I freaking did that again. I can't believe I allowed that to happen. But shame says, I am a failure. I'm never going to be anything but just a screw-up. Something is wrong with me. Guilt and shame are interconnected in the sense that if guilt were to be the cause, all too often the effect is shame. If guilt was going to be the cause, then shame is the effect. I did bad, therefore I am bad. Bad happened to me, therefore I must be bad. We begin to believe. What's wrong with you? She said. So I started to believe. Maybe something is wrong with me. I must be bad. Fast forward to fourth grade when I slept over at a friend's house and we stayed up most of the night watching rated R movies. And in the old times, <laughs> there was cable. And you could actually look on some channels and you could see the squiggly lines, but you could still make out the figures that were doing really interesting positions and making really interesting noises. And we didn't look away. We just kind of sat there curious and wide-eyed. No one changed the channel. So the next day when I went home and my mom asked, so did you have fun? What'd y'all do? I had this massive, overwhelming sense of, she knows, which means that, oh my gosh, my friend's parents must know too. 
I had this massive weight of shame because I felt exposed. I am dirty. I am a bad person. Not I did bad. I am bad. Fast forward to sixth grade dance. I was so excited when the coolest boy in school asked me to dance. And then at the end of the dance, I had what was going to be my first kiss, and it was a tongue kiss, by the way, which at the time I was like, this is totally weird and gross. But at the end of the kiss, he stepped back and he looked past me at his ex-girlfriend. And then the next day when I got to school, I realized that he had told everybody in the grade that we were in that he had only kissed me because he wanted to make his ex-girlfriend jealous. And he was sure that they would get back together then. Everyone knew. I was so embarrassed. I really just wanted to run and hide. I felt like trash. Not he did bad, but I am bad. I must be bad. And let's talk about parent wounds. We can go there. I was 22. My mom had been married to my stepdad for nine years, and I actually had asked him to walk me down the aisle, which was a big deal because that meant not asking the dad who raised me, who adopted me, to walk me down the aisle. Not that we had, like, a really great relationship, he and I, anyways. But my stepdad, things were different with him. For the first time, I felt like that was someone who I saw as a father figure in my life that loved me unconditionally despite my badness. Then one day, out of nowhere, to my siblings and I's knowledge, he completely left, and to this day, we have never seen him. Turns out he had been having an affair for the entire nine years that he and my mom had been married, and I felt like I was just a fool. I wondered if I had done something wrong, like my siblings and I didn't even deserve a bye, an explanation. I just felt rejected. I'm not enough. I must be bad. See, shame is a battle waged on your identity. Shame is the battle waged on your identity. Shame actually comes on the scene in the very first book of the Bible in the story of Adam and Eve, and it picks up in Genesis chapter 2, verse 25. If you go and want to read it later, God had just made man in his image, he says. He says, Now the man and his wife were both naked and knew no shame. So before sin had ever even entered into the world, God wanted us to know that they were naked, which means that they were fully known and that they knew no shame which means that they felt worthy. Man and woman, they were the only thing that God created in the very image of himself. And there was one thing that God wanted to make sure that we knew in the Bible at a very specific time in the story of us before sin entered the world. Isn't it interesting how of all the human emotions that God could have mentioned in the Bible, like he could have said they knew no fear, or they knew no anger, or they knew no doubt that he wanted us to know that they were fully known and felt fully worthy. That they didn't know what it felt like to bear the burden of shame. But then sin entered to the picture. And many of you, you guys know the story. They both did the one thing, right, that God asked for them not to do, which was what? 
eat the fruit, eat of the tree. So they had a literal buffet of choices. And God literally said, that one thing is just forbidden. But what are you going to tell, you know, especially a girl on a diet can't have that brownie. What are you going to think about the brownie, right? So we know what they did. We know what happened. And in the next part of the story, though, we learn quickly that they experienced deep feelings of shame. And how do we know that? Well, the text says that they ran and hid and covered themselves. The shame they began to internalize now became physically manifested. The actual Hebrew root of the word shame, interesting, means a felt public unworthiness, which prompts us to conceal. So it's attached to an action. So stay with me here. If I were your enemy, and if you didn't know before you were today years old that you have an enemy, he is very alive and well, and his name is Satan, and he knows your name. But if I were the enemy, and I wanted to attack the only thing made in the image of God, I would make sure that they carried the only thing that they were never meant to carry. So that ultimately, they would be rendered ineffective. So what does shame do exactly? How does shame wreak havoc in our lives? One, it causes us to conceal. We heard this in the story of Adam and Eve. So we go around and we hide, we wear masks. Two, it disintegrates who we are. This is when we only allow others to know and love who we choose, different parts of us, for them to see, right? Or maybe we're just not the same person with everyone and in every situation, Maybe you guys have known people who are kind of chameleons and change depending on what people group they're around. Three, it isolates us from others because shame causes us to believe that, you know what, we're just better off alone. And four, shame disconnects us from others because shame makes us want to believe the lie that we are better off not truly known. So we put up walls, right? Or we just walk around throughout life just kind of like holding everybody at bay, holding our hands up, right? So how does shame present, ourself, present itself in our lives? Because in order for us to be able to combat shame, we first have to be able to identify the way it presents itself or comes into our lives, right? And the way that it shows up is what is called shame-based thinking. Basically, this is the theory that we live according to how we see ourselves, we live out what we believe to be true, right? Are you guys ready for this? Because we're deep cleaning, right? So we're going to go there, and I'm going to promise not to look anybody in the eyes or anything, but I love you, <laughs> and we're going there. You guys ready? All right, the way that shame can present itself, multiple different ways. The first way, perfectionism. This is when you find it hard to admit failure. You aim to silence shame by always striving to do your best work to live your life error-free and check off all the boxes. You aim to achieve the highest standard in order to feel that I am enough. I did it. I got it right. And two, another way that shame can present itself is those who are critical of themselves and of others. You are overly critical of yourself and then you also project your faults on others. You aim to silence shame through pride and self-righteousness. 
in order to feel that, hey, you know what? Well, at least I'm not as bad as you, <laughs> right? Or there's more wrong with you than there is with me. And the third way is through self-sabotage. You always play out worst-case scenario. You aim to silence shame by never allowing something to go well for too long. You pursue what is not meant for you, which catapults you into a shame cycle. And lastly, you know what? No, this is for somebody in here. Shame will cause you to pursue opportunities and people that are not meant for you with people that are not really that into you in order to chase after the feelings of being accepted and feeling enough and feeling worthy. But it's a trap because it's an illusion, because it's a self-perpetuating cycle that keeps you wrapped up because the chase is alive, because the chase is endless. And then all of a sudden, when it inevitably crumbles, you are left with the same lie that caused you to start the chase in the first place. And lastly, shame presents itself in a scarcity mindset. This is the idea that you constantly compare yourself to others. You're constantly jealous of other people's successes and wins. You aim to silence shame then through your own self-entitled pursuit of more in order to feel that I am seen. I'm deserving. I'm worthy. Can't you see? A great example of the power of the shame-based thinking can be found in the Old Testament story of the Israelites, God's people, after they were delivered after 430 years of slavery in Egypt. Just imagine, guys, 430 years of slavery, and then you're released. So not only were you a slave, but your parents were a slave, your grandparents were a slave, your grandparents' grandparents were a slave. It's no surprise how after generation after generation, all of a sudden you have, not all of a sudden, but it's, it's easy to see how one would take on the identity of a slave. I am nothing. I am worthless. I am not important. My life is not valuable. I'm just a slave. And if you've heard this story before, you know that God sent a dude named Moses to go before the Pharaoh. And what did he say? Let my people go. And after four centuries, they were finally released. But what happened, though? If you go and read the story, we learn that although they were no longer slaves outwardly, that they were still slaves inwardly. They were slaves to the shame of the identity of who they were, the identity of their past. And because of that, they ended up wandering in the desert for 40 years, going in circles, stuck in this slavery mindset of shame-based thinking. I think some of us have been there. See, although they knew one thing to be true in their mind, shame-based thinking caused them to become critical and self-entitled and self-sabotaging. They were so quick to run back to what was comfortable even if they were miserable because they feared 
the unknown because they couldn't trust that they were worthy of the goodness of God and the blessings that he promised them. Safe, controlled, so just they continued to wander in circles. The story of the wandering Israelites, though, is I think a story for all of us. It teaches us that freedom must first be internalized before it is ever externalized. Freedom must first be internalized before it is ever going to be externalized. Okay, real talk here from your big sis. You ready to checkmate your enemy? Because I am here for it. Here's his game plan. Shame is a tactic of your enemy to steal, kill, and destroy you from becoming everything that God intended for you to be. The enemy is after the fruitfulness of your internalized freedom. The enemy is after the fruitfulness of your internalized freedom. That's his game plan. If the enemy can no longer have claim to your soul, he will make it his sole mission to keep you in your, in your, in your, uh, your shame, wrapped up in your bondage, going in circles and wandering. So what do we do? What are our next steps? The only way to heal from shame is to move the focus from who I am not to who Christ is. He is our only hope. We can't do this on our own, right? Like, I don't care about how to achieve your best life now or believing you are simply enough already. Like, I don't care how many self-help books that you read because Jesus is the only solution. So what are the steps that we can take then when we begin to experience shame or when we notice it's starting to rear its head in our lives? One, we have to recognize the lie we're believing. So we admit the lie we have been believing. This is where we say, hey, devil, hashtag fake news. Psalms 139, 23 through 24, it says, search me, God, know my heart. Test me, know my thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And two, after we're able to recognize the lie, we then work to respond with the truth. We agree with God about who he is and who he says that we are. This has to be a choice. Doesn't happen naturally. Isaiah 54, 4 says, fear not. This is God. Fear not. You will no longer live in shame. He says we don't have to live this way. We were not intended to carry this. Don't be afraid. There is no longer disgrace for you. You will no longer remember the pain of your youth. After we're able to recognize the lie, we respond with the truth. And then third, we have to repent and confess. This is where we allow healing and transformation to take place through him, but also in community, alongside others. 1 John 1, 9 tells us to confess our sins, that God is faithful and just to forgive them. And James 5, 16 says, therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. So as we start to close, you know what's cool about the story of Moses? Before Moses was able to go and lead the Israelites to freedom, God first had to deal with Moses' own shame. Because if you read earlier in the story, out of a fit and impulsive 
rage of anger when he saw someone that he loved being beat. He killed a man. But God is good. Moses ran and hid, but he found him. See, shame will always compel us to conceal. But he pursued Moses to a place of healing so that he could then turn his shame into purpose. God takes what the enemy means for our destruction, and he will turn it for good every time when we allow it. I am believing today that we have some Moseses in the room. Today, I am believing that God is pursuing some of you to exchange who the enemy has told you you are for who he says that you are, to exchange your old name for a new name. And just like he gave to Moses today, I believe that he wants to give you the courage to then be able to go and lead others to their freedom as well. See, if I were your enemy, the struggle would be real. You know why? Because I know who's on the other side of your freedom. Who's on the other side of your freedom? Is it your family? Is it your children? Is it your neighborhood? How many Moseses do we have in the room tonight? This is how I want us to wrap up today. Today, I want us to invite Jesus to come and stand with us in front of our closets. Our closets where all the skeletons are, right? Where we stuffed all of our, our shame all of the stuff that we try to hide. And as we do the hard work of deep cleaning, I want you to imagine him looking at you and looking at your shame. The shame that you have been running from and trying to ignore, trying to cover up or maybe to cope with, the shame that you have maybe just become comfortable with. I want you to imagine him looking at you and then looking at your shame looking at you and then looking at your shame and saying, you know what? <laughs> I see it. <laughs> I see it. But I still have a plan and a purpose for your life. And we have work to do. And you know what? Matter of fact, I want to show you how I can come alongside and how I want to start digging this stuff out. I want to start carving out the band-aids from the wounds that you tried to put band-aids on. And I want to do real heart surgery with you. And then I want to show you how I can take what the enemy meant for your destruction. And I want to show you what I can do with it. And then, then when we're done with you, I want to show how you can run and grab others how you can run and grab others because you know what? No one should be alone in their shame. And together you can start doing the work of cleaning house because you know what? We have work to do together. This is the God that we serve. This is the hope that we have here. That in just one moment, in just one experience with him, that he can take what the enemy meant for evil and he can turn it for good. This is the God that we serve. This is the good news. That shame, shame doesn't stand a chance at the foot of the cross. Right? 
At the foot of the cross, shame has to bow. Tonight on your seat, we gave each of you an index card. How many of you are willing to have your own Moses moment tonight where you exchange your shame for his courage to walk in the freedom and the purpose that he has for your life? To stand at the foot of the cross and declare that shame will no longer have the victory. Where are the Moseses in the room tonight? Who is on the other side of your freedom? Whose face did you see? Because I believe that everyone in here battles with at least one lie that the enemy tries to shame us into believing. And I want you to take a moment and I want you to fill in the blanks on your card. It says, I am not blank, but because of Christ, I am. And maybe yours will sound like one of these we have up on the screen. We have a couple examples if you need some. But if they don't have it up there, I'll just read them. I'm not alone or unwanted. Because of Christ, I am chosen as a son and a daughter. I am not a failure. Because of Christ, I am a masterpiece. I am not an addict. Because of Christ, I am no longer a slave to my sin. I am not just a screw-up. Because of Christ, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I am not special. Because of Christ, I am his workmanship created, and he has a plan for my life. I am enough. We're going to play a song, and I want everyone to fill in the blanks, and then I want you to come forward because we're casting this down at the foot of the cross tonight. It ends here. We're breaking up with it here. But before we do that, if you have not yet ever prayed and asked Jesus to come into your heart and be your savior, to be your healer, to be your hope, I want everyone to bow their heads quickly together and close their eyes. And I invite you to take your first step towards experiencing freedom. Repeat after me where you are sitting silently to yourself. Dear Jesus, I believe that you did everything I could not do. I believe that you are God's son. Thank you that in my not enoughness, you became enough for me. You took all of my shame upon yourself when you surrendered your life on the cross. Forgive me for where I have fallen short and give me the courage to keep coming back to you. Give me the strength to walk in your freedom and who you say I am. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.